discussing things that are broken. And it's not us! <laughs> With Emma Alexander, Adam Averson, George Bendo, Naomi Asambra Krimprom, Josh Hayes, and Song Lee, Jake Stubber Morgan, and Tom Scrap. The Johncast, November 2018, Extra Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Josh and joining me in the studio are Tom and Adam. Hello. Hello. How are we? Good. Good? Yeah, yes. Thank you. <laughs> uh, in the show this time, Unsung Lee and George Bendo answer your astronomical questions. Uh, we interview Bernie Fanaroff and Rob Adam about using science to inform policymakers and the future of African astronomy. But before that, uh, Naomi and Jake talk to Manchester's Dara Big Data Science Policy Fellows in this month's Roundtable Jodbite. The Dara Fellows are Ms. Miriam Mumba-Nayami from the University of Cape Town, Mr. James Mbar-Azam from the University of Stellenbosch, Mr. Willis Odehimbo Obonio from the University of Leeds, Dr. Alexander Kipruto-Kiprono, from Kenya Agriculture and Livestock Research Organization, also known as CALRO, uh, Mr. Samson Mulandi Matunga from the University of Nairobi, and Mr. Emmanuel Francis Ochran from the University of Cape Town. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Jotcast. Today, we are interviewing five of the six students who are currently in the University of Manchester here for the Dara Big Data Fellowship Program. They have been here for a month and this week is their last week and we are gathered here today to ask them a few questions about the Dara Big Data and the fellowship they are currently on. Say hello guys. Hello. Um, I'm here with Jake. Hello. I'm a bit of a distance away from the mic so bear with me. And I'm Naomi. And I would like them to introduce themselves, starting from the lady. Hello, my name is Miriam Yamai. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Cape Town, South Africa. And I study radio transients, where I use radio telescope data to study the behavior over a long period of time, their emission. And I'm a Dara Big Data Policy Fellow. Hello, my name is Samson Mutunga from the University of Nairobi. I'm a PhD student in physics. My research work involves use of geospatial techniques that is like remote sensing and GIS, uh, applying them on ensuring sustainable agriculture. Hello, my name is Emmanuel Francis Okran. I'm a PhD student at the University of Cape Town, South Africa. My work is focused on using radio data complementing it with multi-wavelength information to understand the nature of faint radio sources. Okay. Hello, my name is Alexander Kiprono from Kenya. I'm a researcher at Kenya Agricultural and Livestock Research Organization. I'm here for the Big Data and Policy Fellowship training. Hi, I'm, I'm James, a PhD student in mathematics at the University of Stellenbosch, and I'm a 2018 Dara Big Data Policy Fellow. My, for my research, I'm looking at using mathematics to understand how to optimize the vaccine supply chain during measles outbreaks. Thank you all very much. Um, so before we start asking them more questions, I would like to read a little bit about the Dara Big Data. 
Now, the Darabic Data Project is a flagship UK Newton Fund program in partnership with the South African Department of Science and Technology. The Darabic Data provides bursaries for students from the partner countries of the African VLBI network. That is Botswana, Ghana, Kenya, Madagascar, Mauritius, Mozambique, Namibia, and Zambia. Now, these students are, are provided bursaries to study for data-intensive research degrees at universities in South Africa and the UK across the three DARA big data focus areas of astrophysics, health data, and sustainable agriculture. In addition to providing student bursaries, DARA big data also works in partnership with SKA South Africa, now incorporated into the South African Radio Astronomy Observatory on the broader Big Data Africa training program. Big Data Africa provides training workshops in machine learning, big data techniques, and data-intensive methodologies across the three DARA Big Data focus areas we've talked about earlier. These workshops and training courses take place in South Africa and other avian countries and are open to students from across the avian country network who are currently in the honest year of their undergraduate degree or who are already pursuing a master's or PhD level research degree in these countries. Now concerning the DARA Big Data Policy Fellowship, the mechanism of science communication for policy engagement differ from those used for public engagement. The DARA Big Data Policy Fellowship Program aims to cultivate expertise within the scientific community in order to develop the relationship and skills necessary to communicate the outcomes of research programs effectively to policymakers in order to facilitate and inform effective evidence-based policymaking. Now, I believe this is why you are all here. And so you've been here for a month. What kind of training have you been put through? Can you tell me a little bit about it? Who wants to start? Samson? Yeah. yeah. Over the period of one month that we have been around here, we have actually learned a lot. That is, as it pertains policy communication. We have been taught on how the context of science and technology in policy and how it has involved in the global setting. I've also been informed about the different tools of policy engagement that are that is that are available for us. We have also learned a lot of policy communication skills. Like we are now able to dissect our scientific research for policy impact and how to present the constituent components in a manageable way as well as to different audiences. Yeah. Any other feedback from guys about the training you've been on? Um, uh, to add to what my colleague said, I think uh, the DARA policy uh, training has really helped us a lot in the sense that it has, I personally, it has uh, allowed me to step out of, out of my comfort zone, which is the science that I do on a daily basis, and learn new things in terms of policy communication, how to communicate your ideas to politicians, how to influence their decision-making. And I think that has been an eye-opener and a very good experience. And uh, it's uh, something that I will carry along. So um, can you talk um, more about your research and how the big data is affecting the research you are currently in? Okay. 
I do research in veterinary science and uh, at times I handle complex data and information that I need to share with the farmers and other stakeholders. So this training is of use to me in packaging the material that I'll be able to share with the, with the relevant people. Okay, so uh, being an astronomer, basically astronomy is data-driven. And the data challenges that we have uh, means we need to look at uh, new ways of dealing with the data that we take uh, with our telescopes. For instance, uh, data storage, uh, new ways of uh, uh, computing, cloud computing. These are the kind of things that uh, I do. So do you find the this particular training of policy making and communication um, important or valuable to scientists now in way of communicating their research to the public? Okay, yeah. I mean, well, definitely because um, uh, science can be used as a, a, a tool to drive uh, a nation's development. And coming, be, uh, coming from Africa, I think... Uh, we don't really, at least I can say for my country, Ghana, we don't really invest that much in science education. So this training that we have, this uh, now plays huge responsibility on some of us to be able to go share with other people and also enlighten our politicians to be able to invest in science education now, to add on that, uh, funding of science has been sluggish, let me say that, in African countries. And one of the reasons that we are gathering from this training is that the way we have been communicating our science. Because you find the way you speak out your science results matters a lot. If you, These politicians, most of them are not scientists. So you have to present your research in a way that they understand the impact that it has on the citizens. That will guide them into making like policies or even funding the project that you are doing. What other challenges are you currently facing in your countries pertaining to policymakers and funding and um, research? That you have come across, like, I know you, some of you have been in research for a while and... I know you have had results that you you had want to communicate in a particular way, or you have uh, gone out for funding that you have you have not received. Is this training going to help you communicate better? And how? Sam, you want to say something? Oh yes. Some of the challenges that I might have faced is that uh, the time that you you get to meet with these policymakers is very small. So what you say to them at that time should be tailor-made to, to make some some impact to them. So meeting these policymakers and these funders of science is quite difficult sometimes. And when you meet them, it's very brief. So that is, a, that is one of the challenges that you, we are faced. Now, how this training will help us is that we now know if, for example, you get in a lift and you are with a politician there, by the time you get to the floor that you're going, the kind of things that you can speak to him before he gets off that lift. Yeah. 
That was a particular challenge that Dr. Rob Adam identified, actually, in his work with policy engagement. So that's in his interview, which will most likely go out alongside this one in some capacity. We'll have to decide how we could play that. Well, I personally, from my experience in Ghana, have found that getting politicians to agree to um, big data sciences like astronomy have always been difficult because they don't see the monetary impact. They don't see the economic impact that this science will have on the country in 10, 20 years' time. Is that the same in other countries? Or is, is Ghana the only place I'm seeing this? It is the same. It is the same with Kenya. Because like when you talk of something like astronomy, it's not something that you put money inside it and you get it tomorrow. And this politician's lifespan is very short. They are there for like four years or five years and then they are kicked out. So the better way that you have learned from this training is like you you kind of choose your champions very well, work with institutions. People will always remain there even when governments change. Yeah. So, well, to end this interview, I would like, I want all of you to say some parting words to our listeners about the Big Data, Dara Big Data Fellowship and why it's so relevant to researchers and scientists today. Um, Okay, so scientists are usually stuck in their world where they sort of write um, scientific articles and publish them in journals and um, frame some and keep them in their shelves. But um, in this world, in these recent days where many papers are being um, published per day, Politicians don't have the time to go through um, our work to find out which ones have policy implications. So um, one way to sort of jump that header is to take our work beyond scientific article publication and produce um, policy briefings and blog articles, which we can share on social media and and look for champions to sort of push our ideas to the right authorities. And so the Dara Big Data Fellowship, uh, Policy Fellowship is a good starting point for early career um, scientists and PhD students to learn the art of doing that. And I would recommend that in the next call, people um, people apply. And also if there are funding agencies out there who are looking forward to fund this program, that they reach out to the organizers and, and make sure this happens again. Yes, as my colleague has said, the training is very important and I would recommend for other scientists so that they are able to uh, share the information from their research uh, to be able to influence the lives of the end users. Yeah, so um, I think science in general has become more statistical. I mean, we not really particularly in the field of astronomy. So it is data-driven, and uh, I think the DARA Big Data is a good uh, initiative, and it enables particularly Africans to get involved in this uh, cutting-edge research and also to build their careers from there. I will recommend the DARA Big Data for everyone. Yeah, so it was 
Bernie Fanaroff, when I interviewed him, he likes the phrase fourth industrial revolution to refer to this. I mean, not just with astronomy, but for all disciplines becoming more data-driven. And so it'll be you guys that are at the forefront of that. Okay. So uh, I think data big data is, is a very good initiative. And one thing that I learned from this program when we were doing the training is that, uh, like one of my colleagues said, is to identify your audience and to speak the immediate response to your research. Like, for example, if you're doing, if you're in academia and you have something that can directly impact or immediately impact the society out there, then it's good. Then you can you can communicate that to your to the policy makers. And another thing that I would I would encourage the listeners and early science researchers and PhD students and postdocs is to I mean to encourage women to apply for this program given that there are very few women. I mean I'm the only one who attended the program for the first group. So I would encourage women out there to uh, join um, the training. Thank you. Okay, thank you all for joining us today and. We wish you all the best in your future research and and in communicating your your findings to our policymakers so that Africa will will start changing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And all the best. Thank you. Thanks for that, Naomi and Jake. Now Emma and Jake interview Bernie Fanaroff about using science to inform policymakers and the future of African astronomy. We're here with Dr. Bernie Fanaroff, who is the former director of the SKA South Africa. He holds his BSc honours in physics from the University of the Witwatersrand, a PhD in radio astronomy from Cambridge University, plus honorary doctoral degrees from six South African universities. Cambridge, he was awarded an Isaac Newton studentship by Trinity College, and is known for the Fanaroff-Riley classification of radio galaxies and quasars. So, welcome. Thank you for joining us on the Jodcast. Thank you for having me here. It's it's an honour to have you on. It's an honour to be here. First of all, I thought I would ask you about the the Square Kilometre Array and um, Mm. your involvement in the South African uh, involvement in the SKA. How was that for you? How is it for you being involved in the SKA? It's been a very enjoyable project for a number of reasons. I was asked by the Department of Science and Technology to take on the direction of South Africa's bid at the beginning of 2003. And initially our idea was simply to host the telescope. And then about a year or so later we decided if we were going to be part of the project we should get involved in the technology and perhaps build our own precursor so that we could build up our own astronomy community and a technology community and so on. So I've been working with a wonderful group of people. We were very lean and mean, but very focused, and that was an advantage because everybody who came onto the project was very dedicated and very committed. So we've had some scientists, but a lot of engineers working with us, and it's been a pleasure working with the engineers. I've worked with a lot of people over the years, but no reflection on scientists. Engineers are wonderful. When you ask them to do something, they don't call a committee meeting. They just get on with it. And then they come back and say, okay, what's next? Yeah. So that's been a pleasure. And we've been able to move from a position where I think a lot of people in the SKA community didn't take us very seriously at the beginning. And as we went on, the team were able to show that they had a lot of expertise and that that expertise was worth listening to. Within a year or so, people started to take us more seriously, both in respect of the site bid and in respect of developing the design of the telescope and the technology. And over the years, we've now been able to build the Meerkat telescope, which at this point is 
probably the gold standard. I know that might be disputed by the JBLA in America, but I think the Meerkat is probably more sensitive and better dynamic range and so on. So we're very happy with what we've got now. And this science which is starting to come from the Meerkat, I think is going to be spectacular. I really envy the young astronomers who are going to get the results from it. So I've enjoyed the project. It's been a great project to work on, very nice people. What One of the things I've enjoyed about it is that the young people who've worked on our team have really been excited by the project itself, both the technology and the science, and of course by the challenge of the site. So I'd often come in on a Monday and find that one or other of the teams had worked through the weekend without being asked to do so, just they felt that they weren't up to date. Or Some people worked right through from Christmas to New Year, which in South Africa is traditionally a holiday. Again, no one asked them to do that. So they've been very motivated and that's been part of the enjoyment. Well, we're lucky to have several students and postdocs from the Mere Truck collaboration who will certainly back you up on what you've just mm. said with regards to the science coming out of that. So you've been using the SKA and Meerkat as a vehicle to drive development of the South African radio astronomy community. So right in saying that. That's right. We were initially, as I say, only bidding for the site, but we then started what we called our Human Capital Development Program. And the Department of Science and Technology was obviously very committed to using their investment in the science to develop capabilities in science and in technology. So we developed a large grants program for bursaries for young people. So over the years from 2005, we've given support to something over a thousand students to do postdoc, PhD, masters and undergraduate studies in engineering and physics. And we've also trained artisans and technicians and we've trained a lot of people from the other eight African countries that are part of our bid. So about 150 of those bursaries have been given to students from other countries. One of the things we had to contend with that in the area where we're building the SKA, it's called the Karoo. It's the it's a large arid area in the middle of South Africa. It's a very poor area, and the town where the telescope is located, Carnarvon, is a very poor town. So when we got there, we found that there were no maths or science teachers in the schools in those surrounding towns and although we wanted to take kids from the area to university we couldn't find any kids who had succeeded in their school leaving certificate well enough in maths and science to get into university so we started putting teachers into the schools and we developed a bursary program to bring the kids from the surrounding towns into Carnarvon and they stay there for three years and then we have a focus on maths and science there and we eventually managed to get kids who qualified and they're I think we've got 15 or 16 from the area now doing undergraduate degrees in physics or computer science. And we also started training artisans and technicians. So we have about 75 young people from the area who have either been qualified as artisans or technicians or who are currently in training. And all of them are employed on the project because it's much easier to keep staff in that area if they come from the area. Bringing people from the big towns to live in a town that's a long way from anywhere is not easy. So that's that's been very successful, I think. We also created six research chairs in the universities in South Africa, and we used those as a nucleus to develop astronomy groups, or in one case, an engineering group. 
And in at least three or four of those universities, those astronomy groups have become quite big and quite vibrant. So that certainly paid off uh, as an investment. Hmm. And uh, in terms of the science that Meerkat has been doing, we recently released a lovely image of the, of the galactic centre. Mm. Um, I absolutely love that image mm. and the, the, all the different areas of astronomy that Square Kilometre Array will probe. Are there any of them in particular that you're excited about? Well, they're all exciting. The only ones I know anything about are the ones that deal with extragalactic sources, radio galaxies and quasars which have jets. But like you, I was very excited by the galactic centre, even though I know very little about it. But I think what's nice about the first images we're getting from Meerkat is, first of all, that you're seeing detail which people haven't seen up to now. And of course, that challenges the astrophysicists to explain what's going on. It's much easier to come up with a theory, let's say, of jets from galaxies when it's just a blob on one side and a blob on the other side. Once you start to see the fine structure and the polarization and the detail, it becomes that much more difficult to explain what's going on. But equally, I suppose, it gives you more information so you can get closer to the truth. So that's one thing that's very exciting. The other one is at very high dynamic range, so that you can see very faint structure in the presence of bright, compact structure. And I think when we start seeing the deep surveys, we're going to see very surprising objects popping up. One of the things that... I think is going to be a real challenge for young astronomers like yourselves is serendipitous discoveries. So I was a couple of years after Jocelyn Bell at Cambridge and of course Jocelyn discovered pulsars by going through miles and miles of pen charts. And of course the nice thing about pen charts is you can see them and you can see when there's something odd on them but coming off the Meerkat or the SKA you're going to get just a room full of numbers and the question is how are you going to replicate what Jocelyn did? So some years back I asked our software team to start to develop what we call the serendipity machine and we haven't been able to do that yet but I think it is going to remain a challenge. How are young people like yourselves going to find the unexpected? So most of the surveys pretty much are structured in such a way that you say what you want to do and then you build your software to do it. So if you're doing a survey you'll make maps, you'll identify sources, you'll do all kinds of physics on the sources and get their infrared and their redshift and all the rest of it. But then you'll go on to the next survey and the data will be left there and where do we then go to go through that data again and say, well what is it that we've missed? And uh, you mentioned just then about how your expertise is in uh, the field of extra galactic astronomy and uh, in particular you, you've made your mark on, on the field of the study of, of radio galaxies mm. with the fanaroff riley classification uh, from your work with Julia Riley. Um, could you tell our listeners a little bit about radio galaxies and how you classify them? Let me first say that uh, there was a lot of luck involved in this whole thing. You have to be in the right place at the right time. And Julia and I were at Cambridge when the One Mile Telescope was really coming into use. That was the first big Earth rotation interferometer uh, and then the Five Kilometre Telescope. So the first really detailed maps of ex of radio galaxies and quasars were being made with those telescopes. And we were lucky enough to be there at the time. We noticed that there were were really two kinds of maps which were coming off the telescope. One showed jets coming out of the galaxies or the quasars with bright spots at the ends of the jets and it looked 
like a snowplow where there was clearly a jet of electrons, radiation, whatever else, sweeping up the intergalactic gas and making a bright spot at the end. Then there was another kind where there was no bright spot at the end and fairly obvious that what was happening was that a jet was starting from the galaxy in the centre and becoming more and more diffuse as it went out into the intergalactic gas. And we also noticed that the ones with the bright spots at the end, which subsequently became called FR2 galaxies, were in general more powerful in terms of their radio radiation than the ones with the more diffuse jets called FR1. So we wrote a paper in 1974 um, pointing out there were the two different kinds of shapes and that there was this link with power and it didn't form part of my thesis or Julia's thesis and we left it at that and I left radio astronomy not long after that and uh, was quite surprised to discover that it was still being cited many years later. But to the best of my knowledge, it's not yet clear why you have the two different morphologies and what causes the different shapes of the jet. So is it the environment, in other words, the density of the gas in the galaxy or between the galaxies, or is it the temperature of the gas, or is it movements in the gas, or is it the way the jets are launched from close to the black hole? And as people will know, in the centres of all of these big galaxies is a huge black hole with a mass of many millions times the mass of the sun. So around the black hole is normally a torus of some sort, pancake, and the jets appear to be launched from very close to the black hole. So it's not clear whether the different shapes come from some conditions close to the black hole or whether they're determined by the environment further out. I'm not necessarily very up to date so I could well be wrong but I I certainly haven't seen anything that gives a comprehensive uh, answer to those questions. Are those questions that you're hoping that the SKA and Meerkat will be able to answer? Yeah, I hope so. As I said earlier, the more detail you see, the more challenging it is, but equally you have more clues as to what's going on. But we may also find surprising things. We may find that there are, in fact, different shapes that we haven't seen up to now because we haven't had the dynamic range. We haven't been able to see very faint structures. And I suspect we are going to see some of that. And we may have to reevaluate the whole issue of whether there are two shapes or more than two kinds of shapes. You mentioned that you left radio astronomy not long after your thesis was published. Where did you go then? I went back to South Africa early in 1974 and I spent a year trying to find something that I could do to oppose apartheid, which, as people know, was the system in South Africa at that time. And I'd more or less given up and I was about to go back to Sussex University when I discovered people who were starting to build non-racial trade unions, primarily among black workers which at that time were not illegal, but they were not recognised by law and they were not popular with the security police. I started to work with those people in 1975. In 1976, all the organisers of the unions were banned by state, which meant they were essentially house arrested. So I left the university and became a union organiser and was there for 19 years until the first democratic elections in 1994 and then I went into President Mandela's office as the head of what was called the Office for the Reconstruction and Development Program, which was the program of government to start to redress the inequalities and the crimes of apartheid. And so it was recognised at that point that astronomy could have a useful role to play in doing that? 
No, not directly. Remember, I hadn't been an astronomer for a long time by then. Mm. But in 1996, the first white paper was published. Uh, Rob Adam was a key author of that. And one of the things that it said was that South Africa must invest in fundamental science as well as applied science, because if we don't do that, we're permanently relegating ourselves to the status of a second-rate nation. And astronomy was one of the obvious sciences where we had a geographical advantage. We have dark skies, we have areas which are far away from radio interference, which of course is what one needs for a radio telescope, and we had good infrastructure. So astronomy and paleontology, where you've got a fantastic history of hominids, for instance, and pre-hominid evolution, uh, were obvious sciences for South Africa to prioritise. And of course, those dark southern skies are inaccessible to Northern Hemisphere astronomers. Yes, but I think it's quite astounding to be out in the Karoo where the SKA is being built and look up at the Milky Way. My niece, who at that time was living in Liverpool and had never been to South Africa, came to South Africa when she was 15 and we took her out to one of the game parks and the first evening we had a barbecue and she looked up at the sky and was completely gobsmacked because from Liverpool she'd only seen a pink sky and here she could see the Milky Way in all its glory, so it's really a spectacular sight. Yeah, I can relate to that. I think it's very similar here in Manchester. Do you have anything else to go for? kind of touched on it when I asked about what you were excited about for the SKA science-wise. In terms of the role of astronomy in South Africa and science as a whole kind of going Mm. into the future, where would you like to see that go? I think astronomy is going to be big news in South Africa. The meerkat is already, as you said earlier, producing spectacular results. And of course there are a lot of other things which we haven't discussed, like pulsar science, which is going to do very well. We have other telescopes on the SKA site, like the HERA telescope, which is a joint venture between ourselves and Cambridge and various institutions in the USA, which is looking for the science of the first stars turning on the reionization of the early universe. And there are various other uh, instruments on the site. So I think there's going to be a lot of very exciting science coming out of that. We have dynamic university groups now where young people are getting really good data to work on. So I think astronomy is going to grow. We are also investing in upgrading what's called the SALT telescope, the Southern African Large Telescope, which is a 10-metre optical telescope. It's a couple of hours south of Carnarvon, where we're building the SKA. It's a very dark site, and the idea is to upgrade the SALT telescope so that it can be an exoplanet follow-up telescope, which will be good, and also can do follow-up on transients. So, for instance, the LSST, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, will produce lots and lots of candidate sources which change quickly, and SALT will be able to follow them up. So, SALT is going to be a nice telescope. There is already on the same mountaintop as the SALT telescope, there's a smaller telescope which is slaved to the Meerkat. So anything that the Meerkat is looking at, the optical telescope is looking at at the same time. And that'll also be nice for transient sources. So if something turns on in the radio, you'll immediately have a record of what it's doing in the optical wavelengths as well. So I think astronomy is going to grow well there. But there's also essentially a challenge for South Africa as well as other countries 
Although there's been a lot of hype about the fourth industrial revolution, there's no doubt that the technologies are making real changes in industry, in the way we deliver services, in our social media and all kinds of things. And we can't ignore that. There are new industries which are worth trillions of dollars and South Africa can't afford to be left behind. And sciences like astronomy attract the best young people and give them a training which is very valuable in data science and a whole range of other applicable technologies. So if South Africa wants to be a player in this new global economy, we have to keep investing in sciences like that and nanotechnology and genomics and so on, because not only do we have to keep up with this fourth industrial revolution, but we want to actually play an important part in it. What do you mean when you say fourth industrial revolution? Well, it's not a term that I've coined. It's a term coined by Klaus Schwab, who's the guy who established the World Economic Forum. I think it's a, he uses it to describe the coming together of a lot of new technologies which are having an impact on the way we do manufacturing production, the way we deliver services and so on. But probably the most important technologies there are big data, artificial intelligence, machine learning and so on. But also, and I suppose linked to that, is things like genomics. Uh, We can get uh, data, bioinformatics very quickly now in huge volumes. Nanotechnology is an issue, smart materials. So all of these things are changing the way we do production. They're changing the way our services are delivered. They're changing the way logistics works. And he's put that all together into the fourth industrial revolution, where I suppose you could say that big data is the kind of driving force in the way that electricity and petrol were driving force in previous industrial revolution. Whether you call it an industrial revolution or not, I think is not the point, though. The new technologies are, are certainly driving changes. Yeah. So I guess it will be the challenge that falls to people like us to be able to wield big data and make sense of it. I think so. And the UK, of course, has said for some time that it wants to be a leading player in data science because it's so important in the future. But the UK and the European Union in general have a real challenge because the Chinese are investing very heavily in machine learning, artificial intelligence and so on. The US is investing heavily and it's not easy to keep up and play a leading role. So I think there's going to be a challenge for most countries. Uh, You know, do we get left behind? or not. And of course, various of your leading scientists have said that there's not only an upside to this, there's a downside, which is, will artificial intelligence get out of control? So autonomous weapons are the obvious one, but there are all kinds of other possibilities. I went to the Commonwealth Science Conference last year in Singapore, and I heard for the first time about uh, something called synthetic biology, where you take uh, over-the-counter things and mix them up and make artificial molecules which have life and it was quite scary, you know, so there's these risky bits as well as the the upside. Well, it seems like that's going to be an interesting thing to look out for going into the future then. Well, that's that's what they say. May you live in interesting times. Well, I think what it is going to do, though, is to force governments to take science and scientists very seriously because, first of all, to maintain a leading role in these new technologies and, secondly, to be able to regulate and manage these risks is not something bureaucrats can do on their own. They have to involve science and scientists and that, of course, can only be good for science because it means that there'll have to be more investment into science. 
science, and it means that scientists will be taken more seriously in making policy and regulations, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. That sounds like a natural place to cut it, I reckon. What do you reckon? Good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, thank you very much for joining us again. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. And so you'll be opening the inaugural Fanroth Lecture this evening. I will. I'll be introducing Rob Adam, who will be giving the lecture. And I must congratulate Manchester University on this initiative. I think it's a great idea to stimulate the involvement of scientists in policy. Of course, there's science for policy and policy for science, and hopefully they'll cover both areas. Okay, so thank you once again. Thank you. Good. Now, Emma and Jake also interviewed Rob Adams about using science to inform policymakers and the future of African astronomy. We're here with Dr. Rob Adam, uh, who is the Managing Director of the South African Radio Astronomy Observatory, which spearheads South Africa's activities in the Square Kilometre Array Radio Telescope. Before that, he served as the CEO of the South African Nuclear Energy Corporation from 2006 to 2012 and as Director General of Science and Technology. So thank you ever so much for joining us here today. It's a complete honour to have you uh, on the show. Thanks, Emma, and thanks, Jake, for inviting me. To kick us off a little bit, um, could you tell us a little bit about your current position um, at, the, at the South African Radio Astronomy Observatory and your work with the Square Kilometre Array and what you're doing with that? You know, up until about a year ago, the SKA initiative in South Africa was run as a project as opposed to being a national facility or an observatory in its own right. And the reason for that was that while we were still bidding to host the SKA, uh, we were set up as a project which was potentially short-term because we might have lost. And so to create a fully-fledged institution around a bid would not have been particularly sensible. And so when we won the bid, the notion first came to create now a brand new South African Radio Astronomy Observatory combining optical, uh, the existing old radio telescope with Haribius Hook, etc., etc., plus all of the SKA initiatives, including the, the AVN. There's a HERA, which is the Hydrogen Epoch of Reionization Array, which is a project funded by the NSF and the George and Betty Moore Foundation, uh, to bundle all of those into an astronomy institute or observatory. The minister at the time, her view was that this should happen in the fullness of time, but she would rather give everything time to be bedded down for the SKA project to kick off before getting people to worry about creating a new institution as opposed to building telescopes. And so as a kind of a halfway step, the South African Radio Astronomy Observatory was formed last year, which essentially is all of the SKA-related work, including Meerkat and then also the AVN and other projects that have been attracted in, such as the Breakthrough Listen a project funded by Yuri Milner, venture capitalist. All of that was drawn into what's now called the South African Radio Astronomy Observatory. And at that stage, I was leading the SKA project in South Africa, including building the Meerkat and so on. And so I then became the first managing director of the SA Radio Astronomy Observatory, known as Sereo. Although Sereo, frankly, at this point, given that it's new, does not have a real brand in South Africa. Everyone knows the SKA. Probably one in every four people in the street in Johannesburg or Cape Town would know what that is. Whereas if you mention Sereo, almost nobody would. And so 
Well, that's just how it is. And that, that, so I'm the MD of Soraya, formerly the project director of SK South Africa. But at this stage, Soraya really is still building. We, we're commissioning the Meerkat and delivering science out of it now. I think you'll, you'll see the first papers coming out quite soon. But ultimately, what will happen is that the Meerkat will get integrated into SK-1 and, well, I guess Soraya then would be the regional science data center, you know, as a, because the actual physical infrastructure will get integrated into the, the overall telescope. So in a roundabout way, that's what I'm managing at the moment, and it's a moving target. It sounds like there's a great deal going on. No, definitely. I think that, you know, one of the things that attracted me to come back into the project was, was that. You know, originally when I was what I guess is a South African version of a permanent secretary, Director General of, of Science and Technology in the South African government, we had this idea of using astronomy to attract large science infrastructure into our country. And really it was done using leveraging on the ambitions, the science ambitions of Northern Hemisphere country. And you know, we did gamma in Namibia, the, the high energy stereoscopic system, the, the gamma ray telescope. Unfortunately, that's seems to be on the wane now with CTA moving to Chile. And then the, the SALT, the Southern African Large Telescope, and then ultimately, you know, all that was really left to do was radio because you can't do anything else from the ground. And then, you know, we, we in a way we're looking for projects and then also projects came looking for us. And SK was much bigger than either HES or SALT. And what's happened is it kind of self-organizes. I mean, you, you get proposals from all sorts of other groups to locate their experiments on your, on our site, which has the basic controls in place from an RFI perspective, the management, the know-how, the infrastructure, supply route, ambulance services, safety, all of that stuff, which is important if you're out in the middle of nowhere. And so that creates its own attractor, which, as you say, there are lots happening. And of course, you have to balance that because you don't want too much to happen because then the main project finds it difficult to be realized because for any radio astronomy site, the, the more people, the more activity, the more interference. And of course, that's, there's a fine balance there because we're in Meerkat, we're trying to do real science at the same time as the SKA office here directed from Jodrell Bank, they're trying to build a telescope. And so we've got to manage doing science with them, with the telescope being built. And of course, there's tension in that and, and there has to be, but there's a, a way of managing that interface on a daily basis that we believe is manageable. So is the management side of things, um, you know, the, the delivering, the managing the, the big projects, dealing with all the people, you know, involved in the project, potentially dealing with people in, in government and, you know, policies, it, it seems like that's quite a big thing. Yes, for, the, for this project, and that in a sense is what turns me on, you know, it's what, what I've done in my, in my career, is I've been at that interface between political decision makers and big high-tech projects, you know, trying to interpret politicians for the science leadership and, in a sense, protect them from that political layer and then also interpreting the importance of the science to the political layer. And, yeah, I mean, you might ask, well, why am I, as somebody who really has a, a nuclear background and, and a, an administrative background, what am I doing as managing director of an observatory and, and I guess that's the answer is it's a, it's a big moving project at this point. The, the science, although we want to do as much science as possible and I've appointed a chief scientist to, to oversee that, it's a bigger project and it's a longer term project and it requires different skills. 
And uh, you're, you're giving a talk here in Manchester tonight, and in your abstract you say that you intend to highlight the importance of science communication for policy making, which we've just started yeah. to touch on here. Could you tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on science communication, you know, communicating astronomy to, to the people that are making policies and uh, the impact that it has? Yeah, what I'm going to focus on this evening is three big projects that I've been involved in. That's the, the SKA the pebble bed modular reactor, which is a, a high temperature modular reactor which was designed in, in South Africa, and then a so-called reactor conversion project where we converted our radioisotopes production reactor from using weapons-grade uranium to using low-enriched uranium. And communication, particularly to that political layer, very important throughout both of those projects. And what I'll emphasize is the needs to have multiple channels upwards. Uh, this is not classic science communication, but it's communication about science and about engineering. Put all your eggs in one basket, there's a chance someone's going to drop that basket. Uh, so at the risk of seeming disloyal, you need to forge different channels. You also need to find ways to keep each of those senior stakeholders happy. They may have different interests, but you need to package the product in such a way that those interests don't appear to be contradictory. Now, for example, in the in the, the reactor conversion project, a big stakeholder was the U.S. government and U.S. national nuclear security because after 9-11, it was a no-brainer that the Americans were going to go all over the world trying to convince anyone who had weapons-grade uranium to handed over to a weapon state, as defined in the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And we used to supply their market with radio, medical radioisotopes coming from our reactor. The other key stakeholder was the International Atomic Energy Agency, who, who had an interest in portraying nuclear as a global public good. And then you had our own government, who was interested, apart from the prestige of us becoming the first country to produce certain medical radioisotopes not using weapons-grade uranium, there's a foreign exchange earning potential. And so there were all those interesting... You had to create different messages for each of them. Often those were private messages, but they were still science-based communication... or communication, what if I forgot to term. So I, I won't be talking about classic science communication, in other words, explaining to housewives why detergents work and so on. Uh, I'll be doing, I'll be explaining why communication is uh, uh, absolutely critical to science projects and how to craft the messages for the particular stakeholder. So it sounds very much like a two-way process. The phrase we I heard used earlier in the Q and A this morning it was policy for driving science and also science for driving policy. So that sounds very much like what's going on here. You know, absolutely. I mean, to, to generate the science in the first place, you need policy to drive science, uh, which obviously has to be embedded in an overall national policy. And then science to drive policy, that's it's a very focused intervention, which takes into consideration the relatively small bandwidth that you're going to get you know, from decision makers, uh, bearing in mind, of course, that, that the average politician is ADD attention deficit disorder. Two-page memo is about as far as you go because the poor guy or woman has 50 memos and you just can't absorb it. When, you, when, you, when you're trying to multitask intellectually, two pages is about as much as you can absorb. Uh, so, you know, you need to, to 
keep the message absolutely clear at that level. Policy for science is your own bread and butter. You can't generate the, the other part without being part of a national plan where development of science is seen as part of a national development agenda. So it is very important for scientists to be part of that conversation. Yes, and, and not in a narrow sense. You know, we had a fund years ago in South Africa called the Innovation Fund, you know, which was a fund which was supposed to connect ideas arising in the academic research community with applications in industry. And you know, where the idea came about largely was, was when one looks at patenting in developed countries, you will see that American patent applicants cite, by and large, American R&D in their patent applications. So there's a kind of a knock-on effect which almost justifies doing the research. There's a transmission through to industrialization, which is clear. What you find in less developed countries is that the patent applications there will cite research papers from developed countries. And the research that's done will link to the alma mater, for example, somebody who studied in Manchester will go back to Ghana. And then his or her research will be linked to research in Manchester. So there's a kind of a divergence of, of approaches. And so we put this fund in place to try to bridge that. And in general, what you'd find is that somebody would come to you and they would simply see the word fund. They wouldn't see what the fund was trying to achieve. And so they're trying to prove to you that what they were doing needed funding from this. It's difficult as a scientist because you desperately want the funding. The only way you'll ultimately get funding is to see what fits you, rather than try and hurtle yourself at everything, um, because you might not fit there. Yeah, part of that conversation means that ultimately you'll hopefully understand the, the mesh of different policy instruments. You mentioned earlier that you kind of come into astronomy from a reasonably different background. So you said your background was in chemical engineering, chemistry. How did you get into physics and astronomy? Look, I had to... So I had some chemistry as an undergrad and immediate postgrad level. I got a PhD in, in, in theoretical nuclear physics. Uh, astronomy, I, I was a, a lecturer in physics at the University of Natal in South Africa. And then in 1995, I was, because of a political background that I, I had in the ANC, I was uh, invited to come into government to assist to set up a new science department. And really what happened there was that we looked at what different disciplines would attract international investors to invest in South African science. And astronomy was one of them. And so, you know, back to the beginning again, we, we started this whole program in order to set up an astronomy infrastructure in South Africa, funded not just by ourselves, but by other countries too. And so I was deeply involved in conceptualizing our involvement in the SKA, in, in driving it through political processes. And I chaired the steering committee for the South African SKA for over a decade. So I was intimately involved in decision-making in the project, but not really at the engineering or scientific coalface. And so in a way, I ran things in reverse. Usually you expect someone to come up from that coalface and then go into policy and, and management, but I kind of did it the other way around. That's how I got here. I suppose a good question would be to ask at this point, now that South Africa has won involvement with the SKA and Meerkat and these other projects... What do you see the future as being for South African astronomy once those come online? Well, what we've done to anticipate that is have a huge human capital development initiative. You know, we've in a way become unpopular because we've had a lot of money, fortunately, from our government uh, to develop a radio astronomy community rather than simply be a passive host of an international project, international instrument. And so over the past 13 years now, I think it is, We've had a very affirmative science human capital investment program. 
where we funded the whole supply chain of, of students from, from even at undergrad level, we've taken a limited number of really good students and then through to masters, PhD, postdoc. There's five research chairs in, in radio astronomy specifically aimed at the SKA. So we've tried to, through that, that human capital development pipeline, try to create a community. Of course, it takes longer than 13 years and you lose people too. You know, they, they go to industry and they do all sorts of things. Can't stop that always. You know, in the first call for proposals, which happened seven, eight years ago, I think, for the large survey projects, we expected, and that's what happened, for these projects to be largely led by foreign PIs. But now we're going to issue another call for proposals at the end of this year. And we're fully expecting that there'll be strong South African proposals too. We think it's probably better to insist that PIs, if they're foreign, include South African students because you know, the, the best way to, to grow good science is not to force people to be supervised by one of your own nationals, but to get the best people to supervise so in a roundabout way, what I'm saying is that I hope that we've done ourselves proud over the last 13 years in growing the community. There have been over, by the way, I think about 1,100 bursaries and postdocs and whatever funded over that period, which I think is not insignificant. Um, and hopefully we've, we've grown the community to an extent where we can now competitively submit proposals as, as South African PIs, but we'll see. Uh, do you have any other questions to ask? Uh, there's one thing. From a scientific perspective, the Square Kilometre Array will have lots of obviously science goals. Are there any of the areas of astronomy that the SKA will be looking into? Is there any of them in particular um, that you're particularly excited about? Or are you impartial to them all? You know, as I said, I'm not an astronomer, but I am a physicist. And so anything which, to me, impacts on fundamental physics excites me. You know, whether it's the pulsar testing of general relativity, you know, and that, that's tremendously exciting. Anything to do with dark energy, you know, that's fundamental, that, the dark matter. Phenomenology, you know, as a, as a non-astronomer interests me less. Uh, but the impact of this onto general fundamental physics, that, that's what turns me on. And I think, you know, frankly, where we are at the moment with, with astronomy is that we're in a better position than particle physics, because particle physics, you God always reached the limits. You don't know where to build, to what energy to build the next machine to. You know, whereas in astronomy, all the machines are up there, you know, and, and uh, they've been built for you. So you can have a, have your spectrum of energy choices. So yeah, I think in, in a nutshell, it's it's the fundamental stuff that turns me on. And I'm sure the SKA will be able to explore quite a bit of that. Oh, definitely. I think that's that sounds like a reasonable place to stop. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, thanks, Jake. Thanks. Sam, so, we look forward to your lecture this evening. I look forward to, to being there, and I hope it's interesting to all of you. Yeah, the, uh, the two of them did a really interesting talk, actually. Um, we, we Science did, piece at the, the Imperial War Museum North. Yeah, so yes. it was uh, an inaugural Fanaroff lecture uh, from Rob Adam, who was a very interesting man. Um, Absolutely. Anyway, yeah. Astonished. It was, it, yeah. it was very interesting. Yes. Um Right, thanks for that, Emma and Jake. Uh, now we come to the part of the show where we fit in the bits that don't quite fit under the headers of news or interview or job bite. The odds and ends. Uh, so, Adam, what have you got for us? Um, so I've got some hot dogs that are causing stripping events within the uh, early universe. So that's a lot of words <laughs> that don't necessarily go together. And this is... Um, uh, a recent ALMA discovery of a uh, an object called W2246-0526, which is super exciting, but it is 
uh, one of these un, uh, one of these unusual hot dog objects, where hot dog stands for hot dust obscured galaxies. So you get the dog from the dust obscured galaxies, and it's a it's a rare class of quasar. Uh, and this particular source is the brightest galaxy known. Uh, it was discovered with Wise a few years ago. This is the most luminous galaxy in the universe uh, in the infrared. It was discovered with the Wise telescope, where Wise stands for the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer. So it does map a large area of the sky. Um, and it has the uh, luminosity of 3.5 times 10 to the power 14 suns in the infrared. And it's very, very luminous. Yes. What's that in context of the Real Milky numbers. Way? Um, like, what's what's the Milky Way's So we've got, what, 100 billion stars in the Milky Way? Yeah. So it's 3,000 times more than that. If you assume that all the stars in the Milky Way are just... Purely infrared. Purely infrared. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so very so bright. it's very bright. Uh, okay. And it's it's very, well, fairly early in the age of the universe because it's observed at a redshift of uh, 4.6, which is 4, uh, 12.4 billion years ago, which is a tenth of the current age of the universe. Uh, oh, yes, it was the light left at a tenth of the age of the current universe. So what's interesting in these new ALMA observations is, is that they've been known for a while about this uh, object, that there are three nearby galaxies. And Alma, with its nice sensitivity, um, has found that there are these uh, streams cro- cross- crossing galactic space to feed the, the monster in the middle, basically, the hot dog in the middle. So we've got this stream of material coming out, uh, and it's really having a detrimental effect on its neighbours because the mass in these streams is about half the mass that's left in the other galaxies. So feeding itself at the detriment of all its neighbours. I'm sure there's some sort of fairy tale analogy we could make here, but it's... Uh... Uh... It's well, just... at this kind of age, you're talking about the, the very beginning of the universe and the very start of the formation of galaxies. So it's a it's one and a bit billion years. So I think we've seen slightly further back. So there's, there are earlier galaxies, but yep. this is it's fairly early. <clears throat> the original hydrogen-only stars, supergiant stars, exploding and maybe that's contributing to yes. the brightness? Yeah, um, I'm not into, I, I think a lot of the brightness coming in here is, is from the uh, the material being fed onto the uh, supermassive black hole at the centre, so okay. it's a bright yeah. AGN type object. So it's really powering stuff out and the power is being uh, created at this uh, because of the streams of material that it's leaching off its nearby neighbours. So I thought it was, it was a pretty cool uh, result. Um, Regular John Kessler listeners will know I work with the Alma Telescope, and um, I'm used to looking at nearby things in incredibly high detail. And the idea of capturing something that's happening over four separate galaxies with this telescope that I'm so used to seeing, you know, discs around uh, nearby stars is—is is this thought of to be a like something that would happen commonly between old galaxies or young galaxies? I so guess streams of material between galaxies are yeah. fairly common. Um, the fact that this, this particular one has got more than one source of, uh, well, more than one that's being stripped is, is quite rare. And the fact that it's linked to this massively bright object is also a rarity because the, I think uh, you only get a hot dog one every 3,000 quasars or something like that. So they're, they're relatively rare. I've run out of things to say. Okay, cool. <laughs> well, that, thank you, Adam. Um, and moving from cosmic hot dogs to Ground-based breakages. Things that fall down. Things that fall down. What have you got for us, Tom? 
Okay, just notably, it's 30 years since the collapse of the Green Bank Radio Telescope. Um, this has been reported widely, uh, and obviously was at the time. The interesting thing for me is not that the telescope fell, fell down, um, but the report is the staff came in in the morning to find it fallen down. Uh, which begs the question, is there nobody, no caretakers? Nobody watching it overnight? Was it not working overnight? Um, the reason for the fall, uh, for it falling down is put down to a failure of a structural member. Um, it had been in operation for 26 years, which I guess wasn't really expected. Um, but this thing failed, this gusset plate, plate failed. The structural members collapsed and the whole thing fell down. So it, it's, I, I, I thought the Green Bank, Bank Telescope was still operational. I well, presume they put it back up. Fortunately, yes, they, they built a bigger telescope. So the original one was 90 metres and the, the one they started building three years later, so about 91, was 100 metres. So they took the opportunity to make it bigger. It took 10 years to build and commission. So these things um, do take a long time, especially at this kind of scale. And it's been operating ever since. Now, I'm, I'm going to speculate um, that back in the day, uh, in the 80s even, there wasn't a lot of computerization on instrumentation. So it's mainly astronomers sitting down in front of screens and chart recorders and um, various other instruments, making measurements almost by hand. Um, or at the very least, analysing data. And with people, you can't always get them to come in 24 hours a day. They do have to sleep on occasion. Um, so I'm presuming that the, the telescope was shut down overnight. Either that or it was really automated and everybody got home thinking it's working fine. But um, they just turn up in the morning. Can't you only see the stars at night? How, <laughs> how, how are you? What? This is, um, this is a did I, telescope. <laughs> did I mention this was a radio telescope? Perhaps not. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's 30 years since that happened. And just contrasting that with what we do at Jodrell Bank now, where we have six controllers, there's somebody on... Um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, so even Christmas Day. We have observing programs that run 24 hours, but we do shut the telescope down for maintenance you know, for about eight hours a week at least. So um, was it a Tuesday when we were out there as well? Um, yes, they're on a bit of a schedule. Tuesday tends to be the love all gets um, shut down for just general maintenance and greasing and uh, cleaning and the rest. Although it does have, it has had um, three periods of about six months where it's been shut down for more extensive maintenance and there's more planned in the future. So, you know, you can spend a lot of money building these big instruments, but then you do have to maintain them. You do have to keep working with them. Yeah, we were discussing that actually on last month's Job Watch uh, about how everything's now really clean and really, everything's so, like, Perfectly clean and white, and slightly too bright. <laughs> I, haven't been, I haven't been down to the observatory for a while. So is the um, the Crab Pulsar Telescope no longer slightly green? No, it's oh, no, wow. it's, it's it's like paper, like whiteboard white. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, it's <laughs> the forty-two foot. Yes, that was down for two months for painting, which 
to most of us seem inordinately long. Mm. I mean, get up there with a stepladder and a, ra- and a, a rag. Right. <laughs> but no, it's fully encased, stripped back, um, painted properly, so that should last another um, 10 years, I guess, in that condition. Unless a gusset fails and someone comes back in the morning to find it collapsed. I hope not. It would fall <laughs> on the building in the controller, yeah. so you'd better keep it <laughs> Well, So for this telescope, the green bag one that did fall down, as I understand it, the building underneath, at least the, the, the story I've always been told when I've, when I've heard about this is, the, the dish basically just folded down so the, the like un, sort of yeah. un, unwrapped <coughs> yeah. itself yeah. yeah I'm trying to like do hand the, motions for, yeah. which are really useful for the <laughs> like, like 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 the bottom of a satsuma if you try and peel it out yeah and then it sort of just folded down <laughs> and ended up all umbrella wise over the, <laughs> over the building I think the building was largely okay underneath it but, um, I was saying just when, when you brought that in, I like showing this picture so that we can argue why we need interferometers. Because if you start building really big telescopes, sometimes they fall down. But I think this is the only known case, right? Uh, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Although, yeah. There has been lots of damage, but that's usually things like um, Arecibo, for example, were damaged by the, the, the hurricanes that oh, went yeah. through yeah. Um, last year. And we, we did have a talk on the Dogcast. Um, last year about how it was being repaired and recovered and back into operation. It is very different, though, comparing, say, Arecibo to Green Bank Telescope because Arecibo is just a hole in the ground at the end of the day, a hole yes. in the ground with a receiver at the top. Uh, Net strung yeah. across the bottom, effectively. And yep. the Green Bank is, and like level, is pointable. So, like, yeah, I mean, the Green Bank is still the second largest telescope, fully steerable telescope in the world. After Effelsberg, right? Um, yeah. Effelsberg is the biggest, Jadwell Bank's the third. Yeah. And the, the thing about steerable telescopes is, of course, you can focus on a source and really um, uh, observe it for a long period. I mean, if it's circumpolar for, for the Northern Hemisphere, for example, you can keep watching it 24 hours a day. And sometimes things are so faint, you need to be able to do that to actually detect the object um, that you're trying to find. Mm. Um, but yeah, certainly the trend these days is for arrays of telescopes. And the, the big next big telescope that's planned is the SKA. And that's an array of 100,000 telescopes. It's insane. <laughs> it's, it, it terrifies me. It, I, <laughs> it, yeah. Which How? ties back to what we were talking about earlier about Dara. Yeah, Because uh, half of it's going into Africa. And, of course, you want local people that can participate and benefit from all this investment. Hmm. Excellent. Thank you, Tom. Um, and now, continuing the theme of things that no longer work and have been maybe put out to pasture, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about Kepler. The Kepler Space Telescope has officially run out of fuel and is just floating around <laughs> as a, a large dustbin with a lens in. For those that don't know, Kepler was the sort of the first space-based exoplanet hunting mission, explicitly built to find exoplanets. Um, launched in March 2009 and was originally supposed to only last until 2012. So the fact that it's just died now is amazing. Yeah, they extended the mission in 2012 for like another four years. Um, and then it was supposed to just keep staring at the same little patch of sky. So if you put your hand out and your fist mm-hmm. is about the size of the area that it was looking in. Um, and it was just observing all the stars there for 
transits, so monitoring their brightness as a function of time and looking for periodicities. To do that, though, you need um, you, you need reaction wheels. These are basically gyroscopes. Um, and in order to point yourself properly, you need three uh, minimums. So they put four on, uh, just in case. Um, and it turns out that was a good thing to do, because uh, in uh, so July of 2012, uh, so few months before the first mission was supposed to end, the first wheel failed. And everyone went, good thing we put a spare on, isn't it? <laughs> um, and then a year later, um, in May 2013, a second one failed. So they were down oh. to two. At which point Kepler was kind of not of use. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really like this story because it's, ta- it's kind of a tale of science goes wrong, but we kind of deal with it. Um, so Kepler is out in space. We can't do anything with it. It's on a, an orbit that we can't really catch up to or anything like that. It just, it's Earth trailing, I think. Okay. Um, but yeah, they had to kind of come up with a solution. And so NASA kind of opened up the floor to, um, everyone and was like, help. (laughs) (laughs) What do we do? Um, and they, like, the, Eventually, the K2 mission was proposed and accepted, and the the solution for not having a third reaction wheel was ingenious, and it was instead to use the sun. Um, so what? Okay. So the reaction wheels can stabilize across two axes, mm-hmm. but the sun gives off light, obviously, um, and photon. It, there, there's a thing called radiation pressure. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> and so what they what you can do is you can instead of keeping Kepler pointed at this one patch of sky instead. You can now use, as Kepler swings round, you can keep it stabilised. So you basically uh, scan um, the sort of, I don't know, the, the plane, uh, the ecliptic, mm-hmm. or you just point it and you just scan in a particular direction yeah. as you go around. So you can kind of think of it like, I don't know, there's you, you could think of the photons from the sun as like a big hose of water. Mm-hmm. And it's just stopping Kepler spinning. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, I, I think that's really cool. <laughs> that's, that they've just, yeah. they've just replaced a small gyroscope <laughs> with a sun. <laughs> so, but they, um, yeah, so Kepler, uh, K2 came out in 2013. And that was kind of like when Kepler started doing other stuff as well. So there, were, there was a lot of, so there were 19 uh, missions in all for K2. So each each time... They kind of opened up the floor and were like, what do we want to look at now? Mm-hmm. Um, they did the mission, they downloaded all the data, and then they started again. There were still quite a few planetary findings. Um, and yeah, like the, eventually they ran out of fuel. So in the sort of for the last year or so, every time someone's gone, right, we've got a data dump, everyone's been kind of on edge going, do we have enough fuel to get all the data, uh, or is or is the satellite about to die halfway wow. through? And then it kind of went to sleep. Thirtieth of October, and um, yeah, it went to sleep and it didn't wake up. Right, and now it's just floating about. But Kepler is great, or was great, I guess. Um, it's kind of opened the floodgates on exoplanets and finding Absolutely. Yeah, finding yeah. them. Like there there are so many discoveries that we didn't know. Like we hadn't even hypothesized before. So before Kepler there was no such thing as a hot Jupiter. We didn't really we didn't realise that you could have 
like solar systems that are completely different to our own yeah. in arrangement and so like a jupiter-sized planet that has a that goes around its star in five earth days is um i can't remember his name now um but there there is a planet that is so it's so close to its star that it's actually hotter than most stars Wow. Um, it has it has an equilibrium te- like surface temperature of four hundred uh, four thousand six hundred Kelvin, which is <laughs> <laughs> which which is hotter than the surface yeah. of a lot of stars, and like you have also Earth like planets. Like it found the first potential Earths. Uh, so Kepler twenty two e Kepler twenty two b twenty two b was kind of like the big is this Earth two point It was an Earth sized planet. About twice Earth radius mm-hmm. in the habitable zone, um, and so that was 2011, 20, uh, two, uh, 2011, and all of the media kind of jumped on it and were like, "This is big." Yeah. Um, yeah. Turns out, twenty two B is probably not terrestrial. It's probably a very small Neptune, so you wouldn't want to go there. But <laughs> later on, uh, Kepler four five two B was found. It's a r- potentially rocky planet. Um, which is definitely in the habitable zone and very similarly placed Earth in the habitable zone. It's actually, so people at NASA call it Coruscant, like after the, uh, Star Wars planet. Capital of the Republic. That one, yeah. yes. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. my Star Wars knowledge is pretty poor. I, I just come on the job cast and uh, <laughs> admit <laughs> I've never really seen, I've never seen Star Trek, uh, beyond, <laughs> beyond the, beyond Discovery. Um, like I, I've seen well, the new one. Yeah, the new one. I've seen I the new seen, one, uh, which yeah. I quite enjoyed. <laughs> but um, and I've seen like the old Star Wars films once, maybe. Anyway, um, you doing a PhD in astronomy. <laughs> yes, yes. I've watched Stargate religiously. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, no. So Ke- Kepler four five two b could be Earth two point but there are still people that say it might not exist. Statistically, looking at transits of it, people. People are still unconvinced that it's like at five sigma level. It's potentially could still be systematics. Could how, be an error in the measurements from yeah. something real. Yeah. How can you get rid of those uncertainties? More measurements? Yeah, more measurements. Does that require a new Kepler or can we do those from Earth? Uh, it requires a new Kepler because, so this, this is the, the kind of the issue with Kepler as a, as a mission, I guess, was because it was staring at one patch of sky. Mm-hmm. Um, it it stared very very deep, yep. so the sensitivity of Kepler is insane. Um, like it's it's able to see it. What it's detecting is planets flying going in front of stars, mm-hmm. and the the le- the change in intensity and brightness that it's measuring is equivalent to um, getting a car headlamp fifty miles away and being able to see a gnat fly in front of it. <laughs> That's the level of precision we're talking. Wow, um, incredible! <laughs> yeah, like it's it's in, it's insane. But there is no way that you can see a lot of the stars from Earth. Uh, so so not with that kind of precision. Yeah, not yeah. with that kind of precision, oh, which is why yeah. we can't do yeah. anything. Like a lot of the planets that are found or <clears throat> potentially found, you need space-based observatories, mm-hmm. um, which are purpose-built for it. So we can't then do follow-up. From the ground and try and work out what these planets are made out of, which is why there's sort of all these question marks still on, yeah. the, on the interesting ones. But Kepler has a successor, which launched um, 
fairly recently called TESS, um, Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. I talk about it quite a lot on this program because um, it's what gives me a job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, where Kepler was just this fist-sized lump of sky, mm-hmm. uh, TESS is going to do the entire sky and every single star it observes is one that we would be able to follow up from the ground. So um, every planet that's discovered by TESS is one that we can fully characterise. Okay, so it's um, not staring as deep, but it's, it's not, a much yeah. broader survey. It's a much broader survey. Yeah. And JWST, when it launches, is in two years' time. And you can play this programme at any time in the near future, <laughs> and that will still be true. <laughs> uh, JWST is has got a specific allocation of time to actually do some proper spectro, uh, spectroscopic analysis of TESS finds. Um, wow, and yeah, there's a really cool. there's a mission that's going up in well it's just been greenlit by ESA called Aerial, which is specifically built for transmission spectroscopy of exoplanets. Um, like they're they're building it so that we'll be able to get the most high resolution spectra we've ever discovered ever got. So yeah, like it's it's the death of Kepler, but very much not the death of the field, mm-hmm. um, which oh, is barely starting on the field. Yeah, well, exactly. Something. Five years, ten years at most. Yeah. While all of these uh, these planets, uh, the, sorry, the, the, these new missions are going out and finding new planets, Kepler is now just destined to float forever because it's in a very stable orbit. Oh, is it? Okay, um, so we're, we're, right. we're never yeah. going to catch it up, or it's never no, going to orbit. No, it's 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 probably not. It's it's stable for like the next million years or so. Oh, okay. So don't worry about it. <laughs> Farewell, Kepler. <laughs> <laughs> Fly safe. <laughs> right, anyway, that's that's enough of that. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Kepler's gone. Uh, long live Tess. Okay, yep. yeah. Right. So basically, the future of astronomy is either lots of arrays of telescopes on Earth or mm. satellite missions. Yes. I think there's a case for returning to the moon. I think there's and building absolutely. arrays of satellite arrays of uh, telescopes on the lunar surface. At least you can go out and fix them if they go wrong. We have discussed lunar habitation actually. Um, Laura and I had a, an argument about it on here, um, and there's there's actually quite a good point that she raised. Of um, it's the the gravity on the moon is so weak that when you land, you kick up a load of dust, and that dust takes decades to settle. So if you're actually trying to build sensitive instruments, such as, I don't know, optical telescopes or whatever, then you're just kicking up dust everywhere. And you, yeah, like, so the, 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 the dust from the moon landings has only just properly finally really landed, wow. landed back again and stopped being like flown about everywhere. So there, there are, there are issues with <laughs> lunar surface stuff, but, um, turning away from space. Uh, and the moon, uh, and back to our local uh, local fields. Uh, the Jard Watch is back. Um, Crispin is not here to sing as a bad theme tune. <laughs> um, the Jard Watch. Um, so yeah, what's been happening here? We've had a SETI conference, um, I think. Uh, yeah, we had a two and a half day SETI conference here in Manchester. Um, talking for those that don't know, SETI is the search for extraterrestrial intelligences. Uh, we had quite an interesting uh, set of sessions from a variety of people, um, closely linked with the uh, Breakthrough Listen um, initiatives. 
Um, and because people are discussing what should we do, how how do we detect an alien intelligence? How do you know a signal from space is an artifact and not actually just some random process that we don't understand? So if you sent a um, continuous wave signal towards Earth to say, hello, we're here, um, would we just pick that up as some kind of... Pulsar or... <laughs> well, Pulsar is... Pulsar is a good way of potentially identifying yourself as alien. So the proposal was um, you identify all of the target stars that you, you are target stars with potential planets and potential life, and you beam signals directly towards them. Um, and to make sure you know it's an artifact, one of the suggestions was look behind you along the line of sight between you and the target star. Find the pulsar that was there, repeat that signal so people know it's a pulsar signal, but do something to it. So that this is very unusual, very distinctive, and more likely to be an artifact than you know sending Morse code or sending encoded pictures of people as um, uh, blocks and white squares. But doesn't that rely on you having a pulsar? that's exactly in line with you and your target star? <clears throat> um, there's about two and a half thousand, two thousand seven hundred and yeah. something pulsars. So the chances are that you, you're limited to the plane of the galaxy when you're looking for your target stars. So that's where you have the biggest chance. Um, but you have quite a reasonable chance of having a pulsar somewhere nearby okay. that you could say, well, we'll pick this one and we'll send a, a signal that's reversed. Oh. Or we'll send a signal that's always on and then dips in the same shape as the pulsar at a particular time, which would obviously look something really unusual to us. Okay. So, um, yeah, uh, we're, we're talking about pulsars and um, the, the SETI conference. And at that conference, uh, Joss and Bell Burnell was there, um, the, uh, one of the discoverers of pulsars. Originally, yep. and uh, we have uh, actually named the lecture theatre that uh, the SETI conference was in after her. So yes, the, the following week. Um, so we've had an extension here at Manchester to the uh, Schuster Building, which is our basic physics. Um, basic um, physics, not basic astronomy. Physics. <laughs> not astronomy. The, astron- the astrophysicists are over here in Alan Turing. We're kept elsewhere. Yes, we're, we're <laughs> very much separate. Um, but they've had an extension to the building. Um, and as part of that, there's a big space on the ground floor. And they, we dedicated that to Dame Jocelyn Bell uh, Burnell. Um, not only for a role in discovering pulsars 51 years ago, but also, you know, her role, her inspirational leadership for women in science over that period. Yeah, no, it's, um, thoroughly deserved. Um, and I know some friends that I have some friends that went down there specifically to meet her because she is their idol, like the person that got them into science in the first place. Yes. Um, the interesting thing is, of course, we had the SETI conference the week before and then dedicated the lecture theatre the following week. Should have uh, been a around. It should have been. And she came twice, which yeah. we're, we're very privileged. Um, so, yeah, uh, that is the end of the odds and ends of Job Watch. So, uh, having talked about uh, extraterrestrial intelligence, we can now get some terrestrial intelligence. We've got uh, Unsung and George with Ask an Astronomer. 
First, we have two questions about cosmology. Joe Carl asks, Telescopes are looking back into the past. What happens when they can see light that is equal to or older than the age of the known universe? And John asks, What was the source of the cosmic microwave background radiation? Is the source still in existence and still generating radiation that will go on forever, or has the source disappeared? So both these questions are related, so I thought I would discuss them together. The universe, when it first formed in the Big Bang, was very dense and opaque to light. About 400,000 years after the Big Bang, the universe became transparent to light, and the thermal energy in the universe was radiated into space. We observe that energy today in the form of cosmic microwave background radiation. When we observe this radiation, we are effectively looking at when the early universe was an opaque gas. We cannot see beyond the surface, which means that we also cannot see what the universe looked like when it was younger, or what could have existed before the universe. Much of the gas that produced the cosmic microwave background radiation has now been transformed into stars and galaxies, and the rest of it is found in very diffuse intergalactic gas between galaxies. This means that the source that produced the radiation is still in existence in a way, but not really in its original form. As for the radiation itself, it will continue to propagate through space. Is already been redshifted by the expansion of the universe, and it will continue to be redshifted as the universe expands. Also, a small amount of the radiation will be absorbed by solid astronomical objects like planets, or it will be absorbed by interstellar gas, but most of the radiation will continue to propagate through the universe forever. Next, we have a simple question that could be related to science fiction. A visitor at Blue Dot this year asked, How far away from the Earth would you have to be to look back and see dinosaurs? So a light year is defined as the distance that light travels in one year, and it is equivalent to 9.5 trillion kilometers. The dinosaurs died 65 million years ago, so places that are 65 million light years from Earth would see the Earth at the time it had dinosaurs. Can you say something else about this question? Well, 65 million light years is equivalent to a location well outside the Milky Way galaxy and also outside the local group of galaxies. It corresponds to some place like the far side of the Virgo cluster. Anything else? So, in the spirit of Randall Monroe's book entitled What If, I also did some calculations to determine how large a telescope you would need to actually produce an image of a dinosaur at a distance of 65 million light years away that didn't look like a dot. In astronomical jargon, this is called resolving the object. The largest dinosaurs were the titanosaurs, which were about 40 meters long. To resolve an object that size, at a distance of 65 million light years, you would need a telescope about one light year in diameter. This brings up interesting questions about how a telescope that large would actually work, but I will leave those questions for another time. Thanks for that, Nsong and George. Uh, and now, on to the feedback. Uh, we've had no feedback, but um, if any of you would actually like to send us some actual feedback, rather than just trying to sell us things, please don't try and sell us things, we don't have any money. 
We've just bought a new studio. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, you can uh, send us feedback uh, via the website at www.jodcast.net. Uh, Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. YouTube, which we might eventually use, uh, at youtube.com slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget you can send us post. Uh, the address is on the website. So, uh, that is the end of the November Extra. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, I hope you have all had a good time and learned some things about space and or just enjoyed Adam talking about hot dogs. Hot dogs. Hot dogs. Um, yeah. Now. It's, well, it's nearly <laughs> lunchtime, right? It's always nearly lunchtime. Um, so, uh, thank you... Dr. Bernie Fanaroff, Dr. Rob Adam, and Ms. Miriam Mumba Nyamba, Mr. James Mbar Azam, Mr. Willis Odohembo Obonyo, Dr. Alexander Kripoto Krimpono, Mr. Samson Mulandi Matonga, and Mr. Emmanuel Francis Ochran for the interviews. The editors were Naomi Asamba Frimpong, Bin Yu, Tian Biesenthal, Hongming Tang, and Lizzie Lee. The producer was Naomi Asamba Frimpong. Until next time, Jodong! Jodong.